Hello and welcome to Paleo Cinema Podcast 264. My name is Terry Frost and this time around I'm doing some Bogart and I'm doing some Jackie Chan because nothing goes together quite like Bogart and Jackie Chan. For the Bogart, I am doing a movie he did in between Casablanca and the Maltese Falcon, being a nice little Water Brothers film called Action in the North Atlantic. And then we're moving forward to 1986 for Jackie Chan's Armour of God. Both action films, but both very different action films. So let me get the contact details out of the way and we'll get the show started. Paleo Cinema Podcast is a podcast about old movies. There is one rule only. The movies have to be more than 20 years old. They can be any genre. I'm looking at classics. I'm looking at hidden gems. I'm looking at interesting films. So if you'd like to give feedback, that'd be great. The feedback can be done by email to feedbackpaleo at gmail.com. You can also friend me up on the Paleo Cinema Cafe on Facebook. Also, if you're an incredibly generous person, you can support the podcast via Patreon at patreon.com slash paleocinema. Just be aware that this podcast may involve adult concepts and a bit of swearing, so just don't listen to it on speaker when the kids are around. Okay, so how the hell have you been? Um, it's been smoky as fuck here, to be honest with you. The bushfire smoke has persisted, and the wearing of masks has begun something that people are doing around here to get that fine particulate bushfire smoke out of their lungs. Um, we've got some on order from eBay, but we haven't bought them yet. It's singularly weird, and it's unprecedented in my experience. It really is ugly and horrible uh kind of you get a kind of sick puce colored tint to the sky um going out and it makes your eyes sore and you get um, a bit of a choke in the throat not sure what it's doing to my lungs but it can't be good and even though it's rained and we've had thunderstorms in the last few hours there's still shit in the air the particles are that fine that we really can't filter them out very easily it's it's disturbing and really freaky and so people are spending a lot of time inside there have been some sporting events cancelled in melbourne and yeah we're kind of pissed off because for a decade or more conservative governments have been stopping us doing anything about climate change and also water management and all those other things that are important in keeping the environment intact and they're still spinning it so um, I know I, I get political at times on this podcast, but the political has become kind of tangible in a way that I can't recall it ever being before. And that's really a bit worrying. Uh, a lot of people are in a bit of a bad way about this. If, if you are, um, you know, talk to people, do what you need to do to manage it because it is disturbing. As I said, it is worrying and it is a trigger for people who are prone to catastrophic thinking. I'm kind of keeping it together. Okay, we've had other things to deal with. We've had all the gutters in the house done. We're getting the roof resealed. And our air conditioner spat the dummies, so we've had to fork out a large amount of money to get a new air conditioner, which is a kind of not negotiable in an Australian summer, even though this one's been atypical. So 2020 has been really um, unusual. For everybody I've spoken to, everybody in Australia at least, the fortnight since the New Year started has been incredibly long, subjectively very long, because so many things have happened in the country 
that we're still processing that it really has stretched our sense of duration about it in in some really weird ways in spite of that i have been watching things which is um kind of what i do i did a youtube video about the naked jungle and secret of the incas which was a bit of fun to put together and that of course necessitated re-watching both of those movies which are good fun 1950s adventure films uh check out the youtube video about it if you want to know more because i had a good time with that one saying that secret of the incas is the only movie where charlton heston played a sex worker um i had a bit of fun with that that was a good little video to put together it took a lot of work and i had trouble working out which clips to use which ones i could get away with using without being slammed by youtube so yeah uh it took me about two days to work that one through even though it's eight minutes long so they're a lot harder than podcasts. also did a bit of binging of media. I watched a season and a half of Killing Eve, which is a really nice serial about a professional hit person and the woman who's chasing her. Sandra Oh is great in it. The whole cast, in fact, uh, Jodie Comer, all the rest of them are terrific. Um, Fiona Shaw, it, it just works. I like a bit of a spy thing, particularly... It's so well written and directed, it just kind of worked for me. A lot of locations around Europe, uh, some nice twists and turns and unexpected bits. The spies aren't the spies that we're used to in other things. And the characters are very nuanced. Even uh, Villanelle, the psychotic female hit person, has some interesting quirks about her. So when I finish the podcast, I'm going to view the last few episodes of that. Sal and I sat down last night and watched Joker, uh, the Todd Phillips iteration of the iconic Batman villain. I'm not going to tell you what I thought about that because I'm going to leave that for a YouTube video I'm doing and the next Martian Drive-In podcast. I think I'm going to deep dive into that movie along with another movie. Uh, But yeah, uh, I've got problems with it. Let's just put it that way. But we watched it. Uh, It's got 11 Oscar nominations for reasons known only to who the fuck knows. It's a really um, interesting choice by the Academy. Let's just put it that way. I haven't seen Greta Gerwig's Little Women, but based on her previous movie, Lady Bird, I'd be surprised if Greta Gerwig wasn't deserving of a Best Director um, nomination for the Oscars. A lot of people have said that the movie is great, and I'm willing to believe those particular people. Uh, And I think that the... Uh, nominations this time around have backed off on diversity in a big way which is a a total shame and I think that it's another reason for um, diverse people to get a seat at the table even um, in directing writing acting creating movies and tv we really need to kind of expand who gets a seat at that table and to call it out when a seat's not made available for people of quality who are producing the legends of our time which essentially is what movies are uh so what i what else do i watch i'll get the letterboxed up here um i watched run for the sun now this pissed me off because i was watching it on gem on commercial tv uh using an app that streams commercial tv so run for the sun i've talked about this on paleo cinema years ago really good action film from the 50s starring richard Widmark, trevor howard and jane greer it's another iteration of the most dangerous game but it's one i like 
It was filmed on location in Mexico. It works really well. And about 20 minutes before the end of the movie, they cut the movie dead to play cricket on the TV channel. And that pissed me off a lot. Um, I had words with them on Twitter. Didn't get a reply. I was careful not to swear. But, um, yeah, they cut off uh, before the end of a movie for a fucking cricket game, which was going to go on for hours anyway. Um, So that's the last time I'm going to be watching their channel. Um, What I probably will do is switch over to it. If there's a movie that looks rather interesting to watch, I'll grab a torrent of it or I'll buy a copy of it elsewhere. I won't be a party to the way they treat movies on that particular platform. I'll use them as a reference point, but I won't actually watch the movies on their platform because the agreement, the tacit agreement between a broadcaster and the audience is if they start something, they will complete it. If they choose to capriciously alter that agreement without telling anybody, then fuck them. I did, before that occurred, watch a couple of other films on um, Gem, the Channel 9 um, station, uh, Danger Within, which is a 1959 English prisoner of war camp movie set in a POW camp in northern Italy. It's got a pretty good cast. Uh, Richard Attenborough's in it, Bernard Lee, um, Dennis Price, uh, a whole bunch of other jobbing actors of the time. And it's not too bad. It's got some things in it that were borrowed for, for The Great Escape a couple of years later. But in a sense, in one sense, it's a murder mystery. In another sense, it's an escape um, thing where they're, they're tunneling and doing a lot of other things. But, um, yeah, it, I'm going to have to watch that one again, I think, before I get a full analysis of it because I was watching it while I was doing other things. But it seems to be a pretty honest little fairly low-budget um, World War II drama. By the way, I am following the Richard Rule again, which says that I've got to start talking about the two movies by the 15-minute point of the podcast, or we're at 10... 20 at the moment um yeah so not too much else of interest that i've been watching just kind of minor things i haven't been watching anywhere near as many movies as i probably should have i am doing the radio again next week i've got um abc radio in darwin once more we're doing the john wick series as a whole at the first episode of next week um i probably want to talk about joker on the radio too i will have to talk with um, Beck, who, with whom I do the um, radio show, to see whether we can do Joker next because it is nominated for so many awards. Uh, yeah, so I've got the next two weeks lined up for that. Uh, the John Wick one's going to be fun because we lo- both like a good action film and we're both kind of fond of the cinema of Keanu Reeves. Maybe I should do an early Keanu Reeves movie for Paleo Cinema at some stage. The guy's been doing the gig for more than 20 years, so it might well be worth doing. I'm going to play a music track now, and then when I do that, I'm going to play the trailer from the first of the two movies of which I'm going to speak, and that is Action in the North Atlantic from 1943, starring Humphrey Bogart, Raymond Massey, Alan Hale, Dane Clark, and a bunch of other people, including Ruth Gordon. m'a percé le cœur Vous sur la terre vous avez des docteurs Contact, 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 
transfusion de mercure J'en ai tant perdu par cette blessure Spatial. Retirez-moi cette poussière sidérale. That was Bridget Bardo singing Contact by Serge Gainsbourg. And here is a trailer to Action in the North Atlantic. Submarine, two points above the port beam. Signal attack formation. Aye, aye, sir. Joe Rossi. I'm first mate on this tanker. We're steaming north to join the eastbound convoy. Through the perilous Atlantic steams a grim gray armada, on whose battle-scarred decks ride the precious cargoes for victory that must get through. And dedicating their lives to getting them through are the valiant men of our merchant marine. Hey, Marcy, what was the last ship you were on? The Lex. He means the Lexington. Here are hardened veterans who have had ships blown out from under them. Eager cadets on their first voyage. Heroic gun crews at battle stations sailing into the terror-infested Atlantic to the battle cry of their commander-in-chief, damn the torpedoes full speed ahead. Stand clear of the depth charge, Rex. Let's go, number one. Action in the North Atlantic with Humphrey Bogart making every historic moment unforgettable. Raymond Massey, a skipper who would rather shake hands with the devil than give up the ship. Alan Hale, an ancient mariner who was safer at sea than in port. I like your voice. That's not what you like about me. Well, that's all I know about you so far. I ought to make you smell knuckles for the duration. I want to bounce my kid on my knee. I want to be with my wife. Go on, make a law against him. We can expect attack from any quarter. Lookouts, be on the alert. Forward and after gun, fire at will with your sight enemy.
Action in the North Atlantic is a bit of a hidden gem in the career of Humphrey Bogart. It came just after the big successes he had with the Maltese Falcon and Casablanca, and just before he did a comedy movie, which is kind of one of my favourite Warner Brothers movies from the 1940s, which is Thank You Lucky Stars, which had Eddie Cantor, um, it had John Garfield singing, it had all sorts of weird and wonderful bits and pieces in it. But this one is an interesting didactic war propaganda film, which has a lot of things going for it. First off, the director was a guy called Lloyd Bacon, who had been in the Merchant Marine in World War One. So he knew what he was talking about. He had detailed knowledge about how merchant ships worked. And that kind of informs the way the movie was made. And it's beautifully made. It cost about a million bucks to make. It made a lot more than that back. But they built two enormous boat sets on in the studio because due, due to wartime restrictions, this was 1943, they couldn't film at sea. So they had to do it all in the studio tanks. They wanted to film at sea, but... Yeah, submarines and all the other bits and pieces, Japanese submarines, um, German subs, all that kind of stuff. Couldn't do it at sea. And it doesn't suffer for that one tiny bit. There's beautiful detail. The set designs, which you don't really talk about set design much in wartime movies, particularly from a kind of slightly second-tier studio like Warner Brothers was at the time. But this one's got beautifully detailed stuff. Uh, The story is pretty damn good, and it has some interesting characters in it. The choice of characters is particularly on point. But uh, basically, an oil tanker, the SS Northern Stars, captained by a guy called Captain Steve Jarvis, played by Raymond Massey get sunk in the North Atlantic by a German U-boat. And a, whole, a bunch of the crew, eleven, um, they spend 11 days on a raft in the middle of the Atlantic before they're rescued. Not everybody was rescued. They lost a, a number of their different crewmen, and they also lost a kitten. So, you know, there's this little bit of a John Wick thing there happening. So they have a bit of liberty time, and um, Steve, the captain, the um, Roman Massey character, plays his spends his time with his wife, Sarah, played by a young Ruth Gordon from Harold and Maud, which was kind of interesting. And they have some kind of sweet things where, in a, a very interesting and subtle way, the movie tells us how these guys heal from the trauma of not only losing friends and having a boat blown up underneath them, but surviving 11 days adrift in a raft. And the way they do it is they talk to their wives, they, they know what they're fighting for, they know what they're working for. And the interactions between the civilians and the sailors gives us that sense of this is how they handled these incredible traumas at the time. And I really like that. There's a little bit of depth to this one, which it wasn't always there with World War II dramas. The other main character is a guy called the First Officer Joe Rossi, played by Humphrey Bogart. Of course, the name Rossi implies that he's Italian-American in background, even though Bogart wasn't. And he's a, a tough guy. He's smart. He's intelligent. He knows his business, and he knows how to handle men. Uh, we see a bit of him getting a personal life, where he's in a bar and there's an asshole in the bar who's interrupting the girl singer at the bar, and... Um, Bogart handles him quite subtly and interestingly and meets the girl played by an actress called Julie Bishop, which is really funny for Australians because there's a politician uh, 
or an ex-politician in Australia called Julie Bishop. Um, he kind of meets her and they have a meet-cute and they build a relationship and get married in, during that liberty time when the guys are healing from their injuries, of course. And we get that feel that these guys do have a life. There are also the normal sailors in there, played by some interesting character actors. We've got Alan Hale Sr., the father of the Alan Hale who was in Gilligan's Island, playing uh, Boats O'Hara, who's got women problems. He's got a few ex-wives who are hounding him for alimony and things like that. So they play that one kind of cute. Um, we've also got Sam Levine playing a guy called Chips Abrams. The implication there, of course, like Sam Levine, the character is Jewish. They're really trying to say that all different walks of life, all different races, creeds and colours are a part of the Merchant Marine in World War II. And Water Brothers was quite strong in that. They were a very egalitarian studio for the time. And they've got that in there. They've got Dane Clark playing a guy called Johnny Pulaski, Polish, of course. And he's got some doubts about going back to sea. He wants to you know, live with his wife and kids. But his friends encourage him to do what was then considered the right thing and to go back to sea with them and continue supplying war material to the war front, which is what these guys were doing. they got a few other people in there, but for the most part, they're the core characters in here. So the sailors all get onto a new Liberty ship, the SS Seawitch, which is going to be part of a very large convoy carrying vital war supplies to Murmansk in the USSR because, of course, Russia and America were allies during World War II. Um, And they get um, a couple of five-inch guns and a couple of anti-aircraft guns, and they get some sailors with them who know how to use guns, but the guys on the Liberty ship learn to use these weapons as well because there's got to be a bit of redundancy in case someone gets killed. And they kind of come to terms, the merchant marine, with the sailors. So there's that kind of, you know, first tough, first off, it's tough guy stuff. Secondly, it's them coming to terms with the different walks of life in there. Um, really interesting. The best bit of this film is the convoy itself. There's an enormous number of ships in this convoy. I think I've written it down here somewhere. Give me a moment. 73 ships in the convoy, and this is Convoy 211. So it just gives you a sense of the scale of the material movements and the stuff that Merchant Marines did during World War II. And among the convoy of 73 ships, there are ships from all different nations around the world. There are Scandinavian ones. There's a ship captain who is black, which is something that is unprecedented in World War II movies. And one of the interesting things is that the studio and uh, the director and, and the writers and the actors wanted to show people of colour in a position of authority. One of the ships got a black captain, which is kind of cool. In fact, Bogart was actually interviewed regarding this at the time the movie came out, and he had some interesting things to say about it. Just let me find that quote. Uh, Pittsburgh Courier uh, asked him about it. He said he wanted a black merchant marine captain in the film. He said, in the world of the theatre or in any other phase of American life, the colour of a man's skin should have nothing to do with his rights in a land built upon the self-evident fact that all men are created equal. So Bogart, being, uh, for, which for them was a left-wing kind of guy, was unashamed in his support of people of colour, which is quite rare uh, for a Hollywood star in 1942. 
There's some really nice, cute dialogue between the sailors when they're on both of the ships, talking about the fatalism of if your number's up, your number's up, and you've just got to kind of wear that. Um, one of the guys has some kind of psychic power, which is kind of odd. The corns on his feet hurt when a submarine's nearby, he says, and it kind of plays out that way. Uh, not always, but some of the time at least. And when the first ship is torpedoed, this this is incredibly good special effects for the 1940s. The explosions feel real. Uh, there's camera shaking there. There's guys being thrown across the deck. And some you know, props to the stunt guys at the time because there are some really um, effective stunt work in those bodies being thrown around. You get the sense of the percussion and the concussive effects of explosives there. They're not just something in the background while people are running they really do have a hard visceral impact as portrayed in this movie by the way i said it cost a million bucks to make it was actually two and a half million and it made back about three and a half million so they did really well uh and in spite of the fact that it is based in a studio it doesn't feel like it's a um, studio bound you get the sense of the ocean you get the sense of the guys traveling across it really really well um, you do get some shots on the German U-boats that are following them. And to give it that extra verisimilitude, the Germans speak in German with no subtitles. You get the gist of what they're saying from what they're doing. But the movie wanted to get that sense of realism by definitely um, showing the Germans speaking German. And I kind of like that. They didn't make it theatrical in that sense they tried to very much ground it as much as they could within 1940s restrictions in a kind of reality and you've got to respect that uh the, there's flames on the decks there's um life rafts which were actually rafts they weren't um canoes or anything with a side they were purely flotate flat flotation devices um, which was, they did have boats as well. They also had some really effective peril things in there, like burning oil on the water and how guys escaping from the ship had to avoid burning oil. In fact, a couple of characters died during the thing, not actors, but a couple of the characters died from the burning oil on the surface of the water. And so you've again got that lived experience of the director Lloyd Bacon coming in to up the drama and the stakes in the movie as well. Um, and the nice thing about it is that ship sinking at the first half of the film and the first third of the film then gives us an idea of what these guys have got to go through if the second ship, the Sea Witch, is destroyed on its way to Burmansk. So the worst possible thing that could happen does happen early in the movie and then that then gives us an automatic tension for the rest of the film and I kind of like that I think that it's a really nice piece of plotting and it's something that a lot of other action films subsequent to this have followed I'm not sure whether this is the first time that kind of a um, foreshadowing and kind of grounding of the peril has been done but I think it's done really well in this one we even get a little bit Cole Porter in this movie with um, the girl played by the actress Julie Bishop singing night and day in the bar where Joe Rossi meets her, which I kind of liked. Having a little bit of cold porter in there, it never does a movie any harm. And there are lots of good speeches in the movie too, not kind of 
bombastic speeches, but they're didactic, they're you know, patriotic speeches. But they spoke, the lovely thing about them, and this is one of the great things about this movie, which is such a, a hidden gem, is that the characters speak as their characters should speak. They're not speaking the voice of the studio, of the American government, or of the director or the scriptwriter. They're speaking as those characters with their level of education and their background would speak. But they're very effective speeches. There is Raymond Massey gets one, Bogart gets another. They really do give us a wonderful sense of who these men are and what these men believe in because of that voice that they're given, the fact that they are given their own voice. There's a scene where the captain is incapacitated by a wound and Bogart's character has to do a eulogy for a group of different men whose bodies they're going to be tipping into the sea. And Bogart does that really well. Um, there's the kind of pain he's feeling, the fact that he's out of his depth, he doesn't know how to give it a eulogy because it's never been part of his life experience before that point. But it's kind of effective and it's, a working man's speech, which is really, really cool. Um, if it was something where suddenly he gets a, a kind of literacy and uh, um, gravitas and an ability to speak above his station, in a sense, then it wouldn't have worked. But this one is very much Joe Rossi's speech. And during the briefing before the convoy, tro- convoy of 211, travels across the ocean to Murmansk, we get um, a briefing by the admiral in charge to all of the ship captains, and we get we learn a little bit about how the tactics of a convoy of ships during World War Two occurred, how each ship's got its number and each ship's got its position in the convoy, and what happens if the ship gets lost, or if um, something bad occurs, how they overlap that, how they maintain radio silence and use things like rockets and um, signaling lights and things like that as an alternative there, which are are very much more targeted than radio broadcasts would be. It really is um, fascinating stuff. Of course, there would have been secret things that they weren't able to show in um, a World War II movie, you know, the loose lips sink ships kind of stuff. But the stuff that they are permitted to show, which may well have been leftover stuff from World War I, is really, really fascinating. And just the sheer amount of material these guys are carrying. They're carrying tanks, they're carrying um, small aeroplanes on the decks, the deck cargo and and everything in the hatches as well. Uh, They really do evoke the massive scale of just the logistics of a small, tiny portion of World War II. That was crazily effective. Um, it's almost at times like a historical reenactment for us, and more, much, much more than many other war films at the time. I think that this one is particularly fascinating to people who are interested in the history of the time. And the drama gets amped up a little bit later when the sea witch loses the convoy in a fog, and a German sub starts stalking them. It just happens to be the same one that sunk their previous ship. But there are kind of tactical things that come into play there too. 
Um, in the fog, they decide to just sit dead in the water, not making any sound at all, and waiting for the submarine to get a you know, to move away from them. And so there are things like the kitten start that they've got on the ship starts meowing, and they know that the sound travels across the water pretty well, so they've got to keep the kitten quiet. And there are things like a chain suddenly breaking loose on deck and rattling which alerts the submarine to their location. There are all those kind of bits of, of business and bits of survival smarts that just fill this movie in a whole bunch of different ways. Um, we also, as they head towards the coast of Scandinavia, get an attack by seaplanes um, bombing them, which is really well done um it's pretty obvious in a lot of the shots that the seaplanes are models but the models are used very effectively they you know you can kind of accept that because by this stage you're programmed to accept the peril that these characters are in and so we go okay they're the seaplanes they're coming to bomb them and we're so invested in the characters all of whom get their moments and get their little bits of business to do that it really does give us yeah and let's just forgive the tiny little bits of technological shortcoming uh things like with the submarines under the water you can tell it's in a tank because you can kind of vaguely see the other side of the tank and the model submarines that are in the tank but after a while you just kind of forgive that and i really like that fact that the movie got me so on board that i could really let that stuff fly without any problem at all and there's a great bit of business where they decide to fake out the submarine. The submarine's hit them with a torpedo, but it hasn't done as much damage as it might have otherwise. But they decide to set things on fire on the deck and to pour boiling oil off the side of the ship to give the sub the impression that the ship's in much worse condition than it actually is. And they fake out the submarine and take it out using just what they have on board the ship. They've got some deck guns. They've also got the ship itself and so there's that beautiful cat and mouse stuff where the guys outthink the german submarine captain more than outgun him and i I like that as well the fact that they kind of work it through and use the fact that they're very knowledgeable seamen and they know what a ship can take and what it can't and what's possible and what's not and they use that knowledge to increase the weaponization of what they have and it just works so so well in so many ways for me that movie that it's it's moved up the list of my favorite world war ii films um i'm not really fond of world war ii it seemed to have hurt a lot of people but i love this one because it showed honest working men and that's something warner brothers did it was very much a working class studio in a lot of ways it told many many more stories of people who weren't educated and born of privilege than the other major studios did at the time. Warner Brothers um, played it one way. MGM was all about glamorizing everything. Uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons why movies like this still play well to a broad audience because it's grounded in a, in a way. And it's about people who don't have a lot of advantages, but are intelligent, um, dedicated, 
and they know what they're doing. There's a competence that many, many characters show in this movie, which I really like. It was made partly to honour the merchant marine people who weren't getting as much love as the army and navy were at the time. And they showed that these guys, as well as all the people actually in uniform, were heroic. And I like that, that too. It's not too much of a spoiler to say that they succeed and prevail. And I like the fact that they do. And there's a really great scene of them coming into port in a listing and damaged ship and having people cheering them from the from the docks. And they get to see exactly how many ships there are who made it through the perilous passage. Uh, it really does make you feel good about these characters. And I, I don't quite know how it's done. I think a lot of it is the skill of the actors, Sam Levine and people like that, Dane Clark, Bogart, Alan Hale Sr. But uh, people like Sam Levine, Broadway-trained actor as well. He was the original, one of the original um, actors in Guys and Dolls when it first came out in Broadway in 1952, somewhere around there. So he was um, a well-trained actor. They knew what their job was. The script gave them characters that were believable and that they could play well. I don't think there are really any stereotypes in there, but I think that diversity and that um, the fact that a Jewish actor can play a Jewish character in a movie really gave someone like Sam Levine uh, the opportunity to emotionally invest in the movie much more than he would if he was playing some kind of Gentile. <laughs> and it's also a Bogart movie where Bogart didn't have to carry the whole movie. Raymond Massey carried part of it. The sailors carried part of it. The um, guys playing the German U-boat people carried a part of it. The women, even though their roles are, are quite brief, are shown as intelligent and compassionate and supportive and the, a good reason for these guys to survive. There are a lot of movies like this that tell stories of heroic acts by various people during World War II that were made after the war when everything was settled, people knew the outcome of the war and they knew um, who, that the bad guys were going to be punished. But I find it much more interesting to t look at the movies that were made during the war when the outcome was still uncertain, even though there was an optimism and there was a determination to make sure that uh, civilization prevailed. There's still that uncertainty in there which gives an innate tension to the movie which I always like it's um it's one of those things where the people are on the knife edge they you know the family members are, are in peril in various ways they're trying to honor the people who are making enormous sacrifices to fight the war and they still don't know how it's going to come out those movies from that particular time period, like the movies Pal and Pressburger made in England at the time, where the it was still uncertain, have a power to them and have an historic weight to them that can't be emulated by movies made later on. I think that uh, they're important cultural histories. And that's the lovely thing now. We've got, what, a century and 20 years of cinema history now. 120 years, and movies of the past speak to the concerns, the passions, 
the loves and the prejudices of the time in which they're made. And we've now got a beautiful documentation of the zeitgeist of all these periods of time. It's just, looking back now, it's a fascinating thing. I mean, in, what, seven years, we're going to have had a century of sound movies, which is going to be kind of interesting too, to see how the world reacts to that and to see which things re-arise as we realise that sound cinema has been going for a century. That's what, um, 2027, which sounds crazily futuristic, but it's only seven years away. Um, I picked up action in the North Atlantic really cheaply too. I think it was a $5 buy in one of the little DVD shops in an arcade in Melbourne. And I'm glad I bought it. It really did give me full value for the money. And it filled those gaps in my Bogart movie-watching knowledge, which really showed me more about him as an actor and about a man who wanted to do the right thing as well. The fact that he did encourage that diversity in the movie, uh, as indeed did the studio and the, and the producers and the directors and the cast. Um, a lot, there's a lot of good here. So anyway, I'm going to take a break now. I want to get back. I'm going to talk about Jackie Chan's Armour of God. Jackie Chan, the world's number one action hero. Star of Operation Condor, Rumble in the Bronx, and Super Cop is back on the loose and in your face. Hi. Pure Chan excitement, pure Chan adventure, and pure Chan dynamite. Need a light? From director and star Jackie Chan. Operation Condor 2, The Armor of the Gods. The title in the trailer is misleading because this is actually the first movie, Armor of God, not the second one. The thing is that Miramax got the rights to the movie in the early 1990s and released Operation Condor, the second Armor of God's movie, first and then retrofitted the original Armor of God as a prequel and cut nine minutes out of it. But then Miramax was run by Harvey Weinstein at the time, so make of that what you will. It's a bit hard doing a review of Armour of God because so much of it's visual and there's not much that's um, kind of auditory. So if I'm doing a podcast about it, it makes it that much more difficult. Um, the movie did turn up on SBS On Demand, our streaming service run by the Multicultural National Broadcaster. And the second one's on there as well right at the moment as I speak, along with a whole bunch of other kind of early mid term Jackie Chan movies um, that guy's been doing movies for such a long time he was in Into the Dragon as an extra he also spent a time in the 1970s living in Canberra here in Australia and working in construction because his father had a job as the head chef for the American Embassy at the time uh, he then went on to become the Asian cinema superstar that he is now which is one of the reasons why he's made a couple of films in Australia. He obviously likes the place, or at least liked it before we burnt the fucker down. But Armour of God's got a lot going for it. Uh, it's basically visual, it's action. It's Jackie Chan using that Beijing opera 
um, style training that he had and his imagination and very, very broad humour which transcends cultures to give us a crazy action film. It starts out with the um, insane bit where he steals a spear from an African tribe. A little bit racist, a little bit of brown face there. But that's the stunt um, scene where Jackie Chan almost died. He did a thing jumping off a wall, grabbing a tree and using the tree branch to let him drop to the ground. Uh, did one take, it went well. He wanted to do a second take for coverage. And on the second take, the branch broke. Jackie Chan fell down and basically fractured his skull. Um, fragments of skull went into his brain and he was off for a number of weeks healing from that. He still got a plastic plug where part of his skull should be. Uh, and they weren't sure whether he was going to live or not. Uh, tons of surgery, but he came back again. And that's one of the reasons why Jackie Chan, in the initial scenes in Armour of God, has short hair, but has longer hair in all of the other scenes. He grew his hair out partly, I suppose, to cover the scars, but also because he said that his luck goes better when he has longer hair, which is odd, but, you know, the, the guy knows his life. Of course, we get all the footage from that horrible accident in the end credits of the movie. Now, in the movie, I don't even know whether it's worth kind of going over the plot of this, but we can give it a go. Jackie Chan, a.k.a. Agent Hawk, is a former musician who becomes an adventurer and treasure hunter after successfully stealing a sword from an African tribe. He auctions a weapon where it's won by Mae Bannon, the beautiful daughter of Count Bannon. He's reunited with his former bandmate, Alan, who seeks his help as his girlfriend, Lorelai, has been kidnapped by an evil religious cult as a means of acquiring Jackie's services. The cult possesses two pieces of a legendary armour called the Armour of God, and they intend to have Jackie bring them the three remaining armour pieces, including the sword. Jackie and Alan struck a deal with Count Baron, who is in possession of the three armour pieces. They will borrow the armour pieces for their quest to rescue Lorelei, with a promise to complete the armour for the Count, on the condition that May accompanies them. Apparently, once all of the pieces of the armour are together, the whole concept of religious of religion disappears from the world doesn't actually happen in the movie but that's the mythology that they build up there are a lot of plot threads and things like that that never pay out in this movie it's all just an excuse to a emulate indiana jones and b you know kind of tie together all of the different interesting stunt sequences in a classic era jackie chan movie don't look for logical plotting you're just not going to get it um i'm actually a fan of one of jackie chan's most recent films too while i'm on the subject the foreigner the one he did with pierce brosnan uh, he's good in that. It's a serious role. He does some action stuff. It's basically a UK-based spy thriller. And if you haven't seen The Foreigner, you might want to check that one out because highly recommend it. Not only are there the kung, kung fu stunts, there are also some really nice car stunts in this movie. There's a really good bit where Jackie Chan skydives on top of a hot air balloon. There's a really interesting battle with four black women with Afro wigs, which is kind of surrealistic and mad. Um, I do like the fact that all of the bad guys are white men. Uh, the cultists are white men. The rich people are white men. It's, I think there may be a slight message being sent there to the audience, mostly of whom were members of the Chinese diaspora. This is one of Jackie Chan's movies that didn't get a theatrical release first time around in the USA. It was only when Miramax picked it up in the 90s. 
that it got any love at all. I know it got a theatrical release in some Asian cinemas here in Australia. I remember at the time it was mentioned. And this is, I think, arguably the first Jackie Chan movie which had a whole bunch of European locations. I'm just going to go into the IMDb of it and get all of the exact details because I don't want to get this wrong. Um, it was... Uh, let's see. Now, a lot of those countries are broken up into smaller countries now. But um, it was filmed in Croatia, Slovenia, Austria, Spain, the Philippines, and Paris. Now, the Philippines, of course, not being an Asian country, as far as I know. But somebody tell me if I'm wrong, but it looks like the bits where Jackie Chan got injured were filmed in the Philippines. But I think Jackie Chan movies defy analysis in a lot of things. You can talk facts about them. You can talk everything else. But basically... The reason they exist is so that Jackie Chan can do crazy stunts. And there are any number of these movies that have got that. Police stories got it. Um, all of the uh, Drunken Master stories have got some beautiful wuxia moves and also a bit of wire work in them. For me, the disconnect comes, particularly with Armour of God, is that a lot of the humour doesn't land from my point of view. There's a lot of talk between Jackie and his friends about women and about sex and about sexism and about women being attractive and stuff like that. That stuff doesn't land very well to a 21st century viewpoint, so there are bits of it that are a little cringy. Um, you, know, you know, horny guys who can't get laid, that kind of dynamic. I don't think it works particularly well. I think that even though it was probably part of the comedic culture of Hong Kong cinema at the time. I think that from our point of view, it's just kind of a bit icky and kind of makes us somewhat alienated from these admittedly cartoonish characters that are created in this kind of movie. But then I suppose even American films at that time weren't incredibly woke and um, aware of their shortcomings in that regard. Revenge of the Nerds being the example that comes to mind. But it's still a joy. I mean, I watched bits of it. I just tried this out as an experiment. I wound back a bit on um, SBS On Demand and watched the action sequences without any words. I, I muted the TV. And they still hold up. The cutting is sharp. I think there are a couple of bits of it where it's a little obvious that a male stunt performer is replacing a woman in the stunts, particularly in the bits which involve the five black women who are portrayed almost like harpies um, and Jackie does a big stunt with them. Uh, there's the bit with the dynamite at the end. I don't know whether that lands particularly well. It comes out of left field but it's kind of surprising but I've seen dynamite being used and it's not at all like that. Nonetheless it's, um, it's a, such a grab bag of ideas and a, a, a practical application of ideas that makes these movies a joy. And a lot of film feels like running gun shooting where they get the scenes they need, get them really fast, move on to the next bit, move on to the next action sequence, thread them together with some incredibly loosely written stuff, and just keep going. And that in itself is not a bad thing. I think that Jackie Chan movies have now gone into that part of cinema which is that they become kind of historical pieces in some ways. They're of their time. We don't have crazy amounts of CG. In fact, we don't have any CG. It's all sharp cutting angles, practical effects, and some next-level stunt work at the time. Um, and also some under-cranking to speed up some bits and all of the usual things. A bit of slow-mo to show how wonderful things are. Um, some wire work and, and lots of pads on the floor, that kind of thing. 
but it's really fantastic to watch. A bit like a lot of Chaplin stuff is interesting to watch. And, of course, the Buster Keaton silence and all of those kind of movies. They're, it's cut into those kind of that kind of realm where it's incredibly adept people doing physical comedy in a way that was unprecedented in cinema at the time. And I think that that's probably the way to approach this, particularly this kind of Jackie Chan movie. Um, I haven't seen Operation Condor, The Armor of God 2 yet. I probably will at some stage, but I've got so much stuff at the moment. I'm doing a deep dive into Daiye Studio Cinema in uh, Japan because apart from Taho, Daiye was the other one who did lots of science fiction, fantasy and horror work. So I've got a whole bunch of those movies lined up at the moment to check out and just see whether I like them or not for a start and to see what's coming up there that uh, really needs a mention in one of the many platforms I now have, uh, the podcast and the YouTube channel, and also the radio, to take a look at, because Daya, I think, is underrated. Uh, some of its stuff's a little hard to access, but there's some incredible fantasy cinema that came out in the 50s, 60s, and 70s from Daya, which doesn't get a lot of love. So I'm going to be looking at that as my next big project in some ways. Also, I want to do something about the role of the very wealthy in cinema because it's getting increasingly obvious as time goes on that billionaires have taken over the world. There's no argument you can make against that fact. And the way they've been portrayed in movies has been variable. Um, Some of them have seen them as lovable eccentric. Some of them have seen them as people like Charles Foster Kane who lost their way during their lives. And others, like Chinatown, I think it's got the best tag on it. Noah Cross in Chinatown is probably our best cinematic um, predecessor of the people who currently rule the world. And I'm going to do something about it. I think I'm going to do it for the YouTube channel, just a kind of video essay about how billionaires and very wealthy people in general have been portrayed in cinema. I think there's something there that I can grasp hold of. It may well be a long-term project, but I think it might be an interesting one. Let me know what you reckon. Anyway, I'm going to finish up the podcast there. Uh, This one took a little while to get done because other things came up. But in the meantime, until I talk to you next time, enjoy yourselves. Enjoy good movies, bad movies. Hope everything's going okay for all of you. I'll be back next week with a Martian Driving podcast and hopefully in two weeks with a Paleo Cinema podcast. As usual, after the credits, I'm going to leave you with some random piece of music I discovered and liked. Okay, take care of yourselves and I'll be back very soon. Stay for after the credits because I'm going to throw some music at you you might not have heard. Here are the credits for Paleo Cinema podcast and Martian Driving podcast done in the style of movie credits to honour the people who support this podcast. Thank you to Tom, the focus puller, Sarah, the special effects technician, Ian, the caterer, Grant, the technicolor consultant, Claire, the script doctor, Gary, the prop master, Morris, the musical director, Jan, the dialect coach, Arm and our key grip, Matt, the rattlesnake wrangler, Elaine, our scientific advisor, Julia, our casting director, Chris, our camera operator, Christopher, our gaffer, Miss Jane, our wardrobe mistress, 
Tansy, our Foley artist, Alyssa, our location scout, Mark, our second unit director, Paul, our special makeup effects director, Tammy, the donut wrangler, Tim, our New York unit director, Rabbi Steve, our spiritual advisor, uh, Steve Sullivan, our director of monster effects, Dylan, our goat wrangler, Eric, our set security lead, Richard H., our set photographer, Mark D., our extra, and David L., our extra, Kerry H., who is the accountant, and our newest supporter, Gary J., who is a CGFX technician. So thank you very much to all of the supporters of the podcast. We really appreciate you dipping into your purses and helping out with the podcast. If you 